to the Ross Nielsen Therapy Hour with your host, Ross Nielsen. Broadcasting live from his mother's basement, please welcome Ross Nielsen. Oh, thank you, Mom, for that rousing uh, round of applause. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. This is Ross Nielsen. This is the first podcast of my series that I have tentatively titled The Ross Nielsen Therapy Hour. Uh, you may say to yourself, hey, uh, what a weird name. But um, basically, my podcast is going to central around conversations with folks uh, in a variety of walks of life. Um, seeking a connection through a conversation with other humans. That is one of my favorite things to do. A um, few things bring me more a pleasure than a good conversation, and uh, they can be rare these days. So when uh, it hits the mark, it is very, very enjoyable for me to discover what makes people tick. And at the same time, and this is where the title comes in, I often learn much about myself and, and what makes me tick, and that, of course, is the therapy part of it for me. Uh, maybe it helps uh, some other people listening. Maybe it helps the uh, person I'm chatting with. Who knows? All I know is that it helps me, and I'm uh, striving to do more of that. So um, I'm basically going to try and put one of these out a month. Uh, I've got a few backlogged, and I'm kind of slicing di- and dicing them into um, sort of a cohesive podcast. And uh, I'm starting today with my first one. I started recording these back in the fall of 2015. uh, And my first guest is um, Raul Benesia. And uh, I happened to be in uh, Saskatoon in the fall, October of 2015, when Raul was out there. Uh, Raul is from Toronto, um, grew up in uh, Ottawa. He's an English-Canadian actor, musician, writer, and producer. Um... He has starred in a plethora of uh, TV and um, uh, plays and the like. He also fronts Raul and the Big Time, a sweet-ass blues band out of Toronto. Um, He is best known, I would say, for his one-man version of Shakespeare's Hamlet, which was quite critically acclaimed and even, I believe, even had a little uh, documentary show done about it. Most recently, he has been doing a play called Life, Death, and the Blues, and that is what has brought Raul and I together. Um, During this production, at the end, he has a musician come up and do a tune, and I was lucky enough to be in uh, Saskatoon when he did that uh, run in, uh, in the Persephone Theater. And uh, I was fortunate that he called me to do one of the shows. And I was so struck with Raul. I mean, we had met before, but not at great length. So I, I was so struck with him that I asked him if we could do uh, an interview for the podcast. And uh, the play was an amazing experience, um, both uh, as, uh, as a performer and as a spectator. It was, uh, it was a profound experience for me. I, it, it hit me um, a little more direct than I was expecting, I think. And uh, I think um, I think more people should see the play. And he's been running it in Calgary right now. I think he's nearing the end of his run there. So I wanted to get this up as quick as I could uh, while he's still on the map out there. And uh, if you're in Calgary or thereabouts, it, it is worth, even if you're in Edmonton or wherever, it's worth a road trip to go and see this play, folks. It is truly, truly uh, spectacular. Great music. He's got a smoking live band. Uh, Divine Brown, gorgeous singer, is uh, is killing it there with him every night. 
And uh, Raul and I, we chatted for well over an hour. Um, I guess I should say sometimes a podcast, although it's called Therapy Hour, it will be longer and shorter than an hour. I'm not really going to hold myself to that. So get over it. If it's only 30 minutes, deal with it, man. Um, anyhow, Raul and I chatted at great length about a variety of subjects. Uh, of course, music, our common ground, but also delved into the territories of uh, race and just kind of social commentary in general. And uh, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. I hope that you also enjoy the conversation and please take it upon yourself to find some of Raul's um, entertainment via his play or his band, Raul in the Big Time. So without further ado, here we go. Enjoy this conversation. Okay, so let's talk, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about your story. Yeah. Um, you were born in England. Yeah, I was born in Manchester, England, 1974. And you moved to Canada at what age? Pretty much when I was one, within the okay. first year. I lived in Ireland for a little bit. Uh, um, about six months after I was born, we moved to my mom's family in Dublin for a while. And then we came back to Canada. My, my parents had already met in Canada and lived in Canada. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, my dad immigrated in 65. My mom came in 67. And my dad was in England doing his uh, PhD. Wow. And so, uh, he, what's his PhD in? <laughs> the exciting, uh, exciting realm of uh, international scientific policy. Wow, that sounds intense. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> Dad went to England to do his PhD because he could do it in a program where he could get it really fast. Yeah. So he he we were there like maybe not even two years. I don't think we were in Manchester. Wow. And we just happened to be born there. Uh, so I don't have a lot of uh, family roots in, in that part of the UK because we yeah. were just there at that point. But just across the Irish Sea, not too far away, um, you know, my, my mom's whole family are from Dublin and live in Dublin and have been in Dublin for a long time. Yeah. So, um, so I spent a little bit of time there. But then, yeah, I lived in Ottawa um, until 1983, till I was nine. Then my dad was then working for the Canadian government. We got posted in Germany, and that's where I got my first harmonica. In Germany, in the land of Holland harmonicas. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, I had a um, my geography teacher and her husband lived across the street by chance from in these condos where we lived in Germany in Bonn, and he was a guy who was one of those like um, he was like a jack of all trades, master of none musician. Mm-hmm. Like the guy had. He had little congas, he had uh, harmonica, he had a pan flute, he had yeah. a Spanish guitar. Pan flute. His, a, 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 a pretty good guitar player. Like yeah. He could pick his way around a classical guitar quite nicely. And he was a great guy. Tim Guest was his name. And Tim, uh, I used to hang out at their place. They were so nice. They didn't have kids. And, and, and I, I sort of became like a, a, a de facto uh, child. Mm-hmm. And it was nice for me to have someone else to hang out with besides my brother and my own family. So... Uh, but after hanging out with them for a while, he kept picking up this little black harmonica. And you knew he wasn't a harmonica player because he got uh, a harmonica in the key of E. <laughs> Probably e. thinking, I'm going to play a blues in E, right. I'll get a key in E. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, the highest, yeah. tiniest harmonica. You only really use the E harp if you're playing in D. Yeah. Uh, it's a great sound, but very specific. It's intense. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, Tim, Tim gave me this black pro harp in in uh, Honer Pro Harp in B in E. And um, man, I just, when I walked to school from my house, I would uh, play it. 
while I was walking. Yeah, and um, you're nine, ten years old yeah. at this point. And so it became. I really became. I played it acoustically while I was walking, kind of in time. And then right around that time, I was looking for records. I was like, where can right. I hear this music? So my first records were uh, first vinyl. I feel like I got that had harmonica on it. There were a couple. One was uh, Sonny Terry and Brandon McGee on the road again. That's one of your first albums? Yeah. Get out of town. Yeah, that's probably the first. How did you, did this fellow across the street teach, like show you this music, play this music for you? He, or how you know, did you know he that? Didn't, he didn't know much. I, I, I can't remember exactly how it came about. I'm sure my brother helped me out a little bit. My brother was by no means a real deep roots guy. My brother was really into uh, Hendrix. So that's really where I heard blues the first time was Hendrix, but there was no harmonica anywhere near it. No. So and and uh, you know still to this day it's very hard to get any harmonica around Hendrix because it's yeah. so full and loud. Um, and then yeah, so I started basically just looking for albums that had like pictures of harmonicas on them. On the cover. So then I got Sonny Boy Williamson, More Real Folk Blues. That yeah, was yeah. album two. And then a little bit later. I got James Cotton live at Antones. Amazing. That was like, live at Antones was the album where I was just like, yeah, <laughs> what the hell wow. is going on here? So, so I didn't get into Walter till quite a lot later. So it wasn't like you were listening to pop music and somehow gravitated towards this other music. Right out of the gate, you were listening to real deal blues. Yeah, yeah, because I didn't, I That's think, amazing. you know, if I was a guitar player, I think it would have gone the other way. I would have listened yeah. to a lot more. And at right that time, you know, I think the mid-80s. Uh, even though I lived in Europe where it was very synthy at that time. There yeah. was still quite a lot of music that had lead guitar in it. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Um, so, but because it was harmonica, I had to immediately go to the roots to try to find what it was. Yeah. And I just wanted to try to have stuff to be able to copy. Yeah. And then I moved back to Canada in 87, and that's when I was able to see more like live blues in yeah. Ottawa at that time. It was before Ottawa Blues Fest. Yeah. We were just coming over the crest of where... Um, blues was was becoming an even more sort of popular music for a small town like right. Ottawa. Blues was really taking hold. Was the Rainbow in effect at that point? Yeah, Rainbow yeah, was so going. You were getting good shows there. Yeah, I started to go to the Rainbow. I used to sneak into the Rainbow with my friend Mark uh, to go to the jams. Yeah, and there was another club called the Downstairs Club, which was on Rideau Street. Later, and um, there was the Upstairs Club, the Whipping Post. Uh, the place I saw a lot of live blues was sort of more of a showroom, show bar. It was called The Penguin on Elgin okay. Street. And that's where I saw, you know, when I was in high school, I got to see, like it was about a 200 capacity, and I saw Buddy Guy in there. Wow. 200 person capacity. And wow. it was so loud and intense, I didn't understand what it was. Yeah, I course. just knew like, oh, Buddy Guy, yeah, he's a famous blues guy. I went to go see it. And then like three years later, two years later, he did... Uh, after Damn Right I Got the Blues, yeah. you know, he was playing the Congress Center, Big he was in a bigger yeah. space. And it was only when I saw him in like a much larger room was I able to actually digest what would happen. Yeah. So it was just wall of sound. But there, the Penguin and the Rainbow, you know, Jimmy Johnson from Chicago, I saw, I met Matt Guitar Murphy, there were like 10 people there seeing Matt Guitar wow. Murphy. And I was like, you know, I, I knew, I, and the weird thing was like, I knew Matt Murphy, I hadn't even seen the Blues Brothers yet. Yeah. So I knew him from these recordings he'd done with Sonny Boy because I had the vinyl going, Matt, guitar, Matt Murphy. Oh, there's Matt Murphy's coming. And the, the, <laughs> the really cool one for me was I got to see Albert Collins about six oh, months before he died super jealous. Yeah. And you know, it was weird that night was he, the, he was late and it was weird. Like he was really late. Uh, but he, he showed up and he played on stage and I asked his, I was real nosy back then too, I asked his tour manager, I said, what happened? He said, oh, I, Albert wasn't feeling well, we had to go by the hospital. Oh, that was at, I think they went to Riverside Hospital in Ottawa and I think 
within those six months, he passed away. Unreal. So, but you know, he was, I, the thing I remember at Albert Collins was, again, front of the stage, is I looked at his twin, and everything was on Max. Pinned. Everything was rolled. Every single thing. And he had that capo on for, what is it, G, G minor, it's like a G weird sharp minor, minor or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, just just barely touching them with, his, with yeah. his fingers. And I'd seen him on that great Austin City Limits that yeah. he did, right? And so that was great. But the guy I saw, uh, the big one for me was finally getting to see Cotton yeah. after having live at Antones. And then within a few years, being able to see him there. And it was like the biggest disappointment of my life. Oh, no. No, because he was in a terrible, terrible mood. Oh, yeah. Certainly. Like, I never really experienced... Like, I was like, here's my hero. I got my... I had two friends of mine who were in the Shakespeare Company with me who were in university, and I was yeah. still in high school. And that was... An, that Unlike the Rainbow, the Penguin, you, it was hard to go into underage. And so they both dressed to the nines, man, fur coats and high heels and short skirts and everything. <laughs> and I put on, like, a suit jacket and a shirt... I was like 15 or 16 <laughs> and they're on either side of me and they walk me in the club and then as soon as I get you know they're all like on me like they're my girls so then as soon as I get in the door they're like okay yeah we're gonna go get a beer and I never ordered I never tried to order I didn't want to get carded or kicked out in this place right. I never ever ordered alcohol that was kind of the rule at the rainbow I was allowed in but if I ever ordered a beer I could never go in gone so um so anyways uh but yeah, I went to see Cotton, and you know he starts playing, and you know, and by that time he never played through a harmonica mic. Right? Yeah, he just played through the PA. Yeah, so he could be on top of everything. I get it now, man. Loud. Yeah, super loud. But feedback didn't work. So you know, first song, play first set. You know, he's getting real. Doesn't like this feeding back, squeaking. <laughs> um, he comes off stage. I've got like harmonica cases for him to sign and everything. And he goes by and he's chatting with his girl, of course, at the yeah. bar. And then he comes back and he's got two, he's got two things of whiskey, what, two tumblers of whiskey in each hand. And I go, Mr. Cotton, would you sign these for me? And he, go, and he just looks at me and looks at the whiskey like my hands are full. Yes, and just keeps so walking to the stage. It was total classic. Priorities. Man. And I was like, oh my God. And then the show, the show got progressively worse with the audio problems. And uh. He was in a worse, worse mood. And then he got to that point where he just literally threw the mic on the stage and walked out. In Done. The of, yeah, like in the last, halfway through the, set, the yeah. second set. Boom. And it, it was that thing where the mic drops, it goes boom, and the whole band stops playing. Um, Ray Killer Allison on the drums, Noel yeah. Neal on the, on the bass. So I go to Noel Neal at the end and I'm like, you know, I'm like 15. I'm like, what happened, man? Because I was waiting for the, I wanted the whole fucking yeah, Live at Antomes album yeah. done, right? And he goes, um, he goes, oh yeah, man, James, man, yeah, he was in a bad mood tonight. And I said, yeah, he said, well, you know, he couldn't get no cocaine. <laughs> and I was like 15, man, and I'm from the, I mean, I'm from like the Nancy Reagan just say no to drugs era, right, you right, know right. what I mean? So I was like, I had never really thought about that. About the music like, and, yeah, and drug and, culture and, and being and related. Drug culture. And these were old guys, man. Yeah. I was like, what are these old guys doing cocaine? Later, I'd meet a guy in Montreal who backed up who backed up uh, Cotton and a bunch of the guys. And he said, yeah, man, some of those guys were on cocaine from when they were kids. Because oh, yeah. when they were working in the South, they'd be yeah. paid in cocaine to get them to work harder. Yeah. And that's when my brain just exploded. And I was like, whoa. Wait a so, second. So, you know, I've seen Cotton a bunch of other times after, and he was amazing, but that was still at a point where he was singing his own show. It was before Daryl started yeah. singing with him, yeah. and so you could still see him kind of do his thing. But it was a real showbiz lesson for me, because I was like, I realized that kind of, one, I, it was one of the first songs I ever wrote was about that night called Fallen Idol. I mean, it was a terrible song, but it was this idea of like, 
you know, putting putting an artist like that on a pedestal and and then realizing that, yeah, man, this was <laughs> and for Cotton, this was probably gig like two hundred and fifty yeah. a year. He's still going so hard, you know. Yeah, oh, it's it's amazing. I've seen him a couple times in, in the last five or six years, whatever, and he can still just tear your head off. Yeah, he still blows like hell, man. He's got like yeah. one lung, and yeah. I mean, he's he's it's incredible. And now he lives in Austin. I'm, I'm 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 Paul Osher was telling me that they're almost neighbors. Yeah, Paul Osher moved to Austin, and then he finds out that his buddy James Cotton is next. Is door. like around the corner. <laughs> Trouble. <laughs> okay, so this, you're in your Sorry, teens. You're seeing all these crazy blues guys. Uh, you're approaching graduation. What compels you to decide to go into theater or to acting i was doing both things really at the same time like i my my interest in being on stage and being an actor really happens almost exactly at the same time i get that first time on okay and and um is this in school theater community theater yeah like i i i took a i you know when we were growing up uh christmas time we always would have these little sort of home family concerts yeah and my thing was always like impersonations and voices and because I come from this family that has Indian accents and Irish accents and then when I lived in Germany in that period 83 to 87 I went to an international school yeah so it was around all these different accents kids from all over the world so I was always kind of doing voices and funny things and and being the younger of the two of my of two I was the younger sibling of two of us uh, you know I think humor was a way to kind of get attention and get sure, laughs yeah. and and so I was always clowning as a kid, and then, and then yeah, like I did one of those like um, before I moved to Germany, I did one of those like you know March break drama courses or whatever, and we had to do a little show in front of our parents or whatever, and, and I really kind of liked that. And then when I went to the school in Germany, there were they had school plays and you were in costume and you had to learn yeah. lines. And in my final year there, I guess would have been grade seven. I got like the lead in the play in grade seven. Oh and, like, snap! You know, and I'm from there on. No turn back. Like, yeah, no. I was got like, I gotta, I gotta do this because being the, you know, later what I learned that much later I would learn that you don't often get to be the lead in everything. <laughs> uh, that's been a whole other journey, uh, but yeah. but yeah, and so the funny like a lot of people ask me all the time. They're like, man, that's so weird. How are you like a blues guy and an actor? And to me, they've always—it's really the—it's just two sides of the same coin for me. Because yes, stage, it's stage, it's performing, and blues is such a music of storytelling. Totally, yeah. Um, and that's what that the, having those two things in my life is really what led me to life, death, and the blues, right. which took forever to create. Yeah, because I was in conflict. I really loved having. So you know, now we're into the late nineties. Um, I've started Raul in the big time. We haven't put out a record yet. But this guy approaches me, Andy McKim, from one of the local theaters and says, Hey, yeah, you've got a band. You're a theater artist. You've created a few plays through improvising and rehearsal. And I worked with this uh, pretty famous Canadian theater director, Paul Thompson, who kind of started... Um, he, he created a show in the early 70s called The Farm Show, mm -hmm. where they went into the community, this farming community in southern Ontario, and interviewed uh, farmers. Interesting. And then, through improvisation, created a play that they performed for those farmers. Wow. That ended up being, of that kind of kind of play, that was the first one ever done in Canada in that style. That's fair, right. And I worked with him when I got out of theater school. And so I've been involved in kind of making plays out, again, what's, what's the technique we use in blues all the time, right? You kind of, in a sense, you jam out this play. Right. Instead of sitting in front of a computer or writing yeah. it all, a typewriter. Just kind and of work it out. Composing at, at it all from beginning to end. Yeah. 
you, you, and those plays develop in a very different way because you kind of have an idea, you jam it out, and you put it away. So, so um, he said, hey, why don't you do that? And I thought, okay, great. So, you know, I wrote this 20-minute first draft thing where I was like, you know, because I, I was always interested in this dynamic around uh, the blues and race and identity and how that connected to me. Yeah. So, like, I did, I remember I did the very, you couldn't do it now, I did the very first workshop uh, you know, I do these quotes of these old blues guys. That's the only thing that's retained from this 1999. Is that right? Eh? Is I do these quote, quotes from like Lightning Hopkins yeah. and John Lee Hooker. And I turn around and I face the audience and I'm in blackface. And the audience is like, because hmm? I'd seen, you know, around that time, a little bit later, Spike Lee had that great movie, Bamboozled, which mm-hmm. was talked a lot about that stuff too. So I was really kind of into those themes and that, that kind of idea. And then I, you know, I sort of wipe the, I wipe the black face off and then I keep going. And then, so I tried that and that felt okay. And I had, a, and I had the big time on stage. So it's yeah. kind of like a concert thing. And then the next year I was like, oh, I'm going to try to do, uh, someone said, oh, well, you, you were talking about little Walter. You're talking about all these other guys, but what about your own story? And so then the next year it was just me in a rehearsal hall with an acoustic guitar. And it was just kind of another 20 minute kind of rambling autobiography. And then... I put both versions in a drawer and I didn't touch it for years because I, I couldn't. It wasn't, neither was right. Right. The sort of guy with an acoustic guitar just rambling on about how hard his life was was really boring. <laughs> and kind of telling the story of little Walter wasn't right either. Right. So years and years passed and I tried to get a couple things off the ground. I was going to go to the Banff Center and develop a theater piece with Paul Osher. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I'd met and kind of interviewed, and Paul has this incredible story, a, a tiny bit of his stories in the play. Yeah. But he has this incredible journey that he took. And then Paul got kind of busy and I think kind of got cold feet. And, and Paul, being a very smart guy, who used to be married to one of America's greatest playwrights, Susan Laurie Parks, he, I think, understood that, oh, fuck, this is going to take forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to take so long. And for the tens of folks that are listening who don't know, Paul was, of course, in Muddy Waters' band. Yeah. How did you meet him? How did that relationship uh, come about? Yeah, Paul Osher uh, has this incredible story of being this 17-year-old kid in Brooklyn who uh, meets Muddy Waters at the Apollo Theater backstage one night when his harmonica player had quit. He auditions for Muddy, and then Muddy invites him to play harmonica on stage at the Apollo. Like, it's just, I mean, come on. Storybook. You know. And then uh, within a year or two, he's, uh, Paul's moved to Chicago, is trying to like get into the whole Chicago blues scene, yeah. and ends up playing for Muddy, and then Muddy invites him to join the band. Amazing. Uh, I met Paul because Paul used to be, uh, released I think one record on Electrify Records in, in Toronto, Okay. and had done a few shows in Toronto in this kind of solo format that he does. Mm-hmm. He tours around with this incredible solo thing called Alone with the Blues, where he kind of does, he does kind of do his own storytelling yeah. in songs, and has a few cool anecdotes about his Chicago life. And uh, so Andrew Galloway, I said, I want to interview this guy because I want to find out about his story because I'm trying to write this play about the blues. Like, this went on for years. Like, I'm trying to write this play about the blues. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the thing too many people heard me say. And at the same time, at that time, Paul was married to Susan Laurie Parks, who wrote this incredible uh, Pulitzer Prize winning play called Top Dog Underdog that was a huge hit on Broadway. Right. And she's continued. They split up now, but I met her when I was in New York doing my Hamlet solo theater piece mm-hmm. I was able to get a meeting with her at the public theater and I said you know hey I'm 
this half Indian, half Irish guy, and I want to write this play about the blues, and I'd love to meet Paul because I know he has a really interesting story. And some of his story, I think, might intersect with my story because he's this outsider who got into the blues, but he really got in. That was like, you know, yeah. it would be like one of our contemporaries, like a kid from New Brunswick, a kid from Ottawa, like rolling with Tupac or yeah. something, right? Yeah. It would have been like, oh yeah, man, you're in our crew. Like, it was just, <laughs> it was like he, huh? he was in, he was in totally deep. I mean, he lived in Muddy's basement and his roommate was Otis Band. Yeah. So Doesn't get much. You can't get more than inside that. than that. Yeah. So Susan Susan Laurie basically said, "Yeah, I think it's important that Paul should tell the story and uh, let me introduce you." And I tell the story of in the play of how that one first night I met him on this place in Venice Beach. And um, but what I realized through the process of working with Paul and then it actually not working out was it was another reminder that took me back to the beginning, which was that it's going to be very hard to spend too much time telling anybody else's story. Of course. Because when I started doing the work, so now cut ahead to like 2008, 2009, I've had a few failed attempts of getting it going. The Luminato Festival was going to help us. Uh, that kind of fell through. And we, we had a few different attempts of trying to raise money. And I start doing these more formalized workshops of it, you know, yeah, 2008, 2009. And... Uh, at the end of those workshops, we were doing question and answer slips with the audience. Brilliant. And we'd say to people, what did you like? You know, and they'd say, oh yeah, when you talked about Sonny Boy Williams and that was interesting. But what's your connection to the music? What's your story? And I kept going like, I don't want to talk about myself. I'm this half Indian, half Irish kid. Like there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's all these other stories in the blues that are way more interesting and in fact more important. Perspective is a yeah. interesting thing. Yeah, though. but you know, like I'm going like, I why, but then I started to, and as you know, the conversations in the last five years around race and identity and Black Lives Matter and all these things that have come up, as all that came more into the public consciousness and as I started to understand it more, I started to realize like, wow, not only is it maybe more interesting for the audience for me to tell my own story to them because I'm the guy in front of them on stage. Mm -hmm. I also started to think like, man, I, I, like what the story I have a right to tell <clears throat> in a way is my own. Absolutely. And, and perhaps the other stories that I don't have as much ownership over aren't necessarily the ones for me to put all my focus right. into. Now, of course, when you see the play, I do touch on a lot of different things and stories that are outside of my own. But I had to find my own but personal connection. But that all spins out of your own story, which is yeah. the beauty of the play. It, it is all-encompassing. And also, you know, we're in an era now where, like even when I started writing the play, some of the information I had in the play was um, only passed down orally. It was mm -hmm. only through a blues guy telling you the story. Right. It was only because you had that book on your bookshelf. And now in the information age we're in, it's like you can do the play and if anyone wants to look anybody up, I mean, there's even a joke where Paul Osher, when I'm bugging him trying to get all the details, he says, hey man, it's on the website. Like even Paul Osher's got half of his, his book's coming out next year, but Paul's got half of his stories on his website anyways. So it's like in the Wikipedia world, yeah. information that's not personal, that's not hooked up to your own emotion, emotion yeah. isn't really what the theater's for. Right. No, absolutely. So that kind of drew me more, relu very reluctantly initially, to my own story, and, but I'm really glad I did in the end because as as, like obviously, you, if you watch something like this, you're gonna think we've tried to construct in the play that I, 
I do get called on it for being an ego trip. Sure. I do try to spin my own story to make it like I'm the equivalent of Paul Osher. <laughs> we quite consciously put that dimension in it where as the storyteller, I kind of get challenged by Divine, mm-hmm. who kind of speaks with a, a, a black perspective on the piece, that, that I'm trying to, in a sense, uh, skip the tricky stuff. Right. And during, all, during the later development of the play, I felt I was on the right track because I'd be on social media and there'd be discussions. Uh, I'd, be, I'd, see, I'd see an artist on Facebook who I'd, who I'd know of who would, you know, for my, in my point of view, would have very little sympathy for, say, a black victim of police violence. Mm-hmm. And they, wouldn't un, they couldn't see the contradiction that they play black music and don't they don't only play it like they make their living off playing black music yeah and they 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 didn't see that connection at all yeah and that's when i thought oh no this is actually a really important story to do as a blues artist because if those of us inside it can't even see that the music has african roots and that we have to at least acknowledge that it's from there yeah. and honor that it's from there. That, of course, people politically are going to have all kinds of ideas. And it doesn't mean that, you know, every black guy who plays the blues is a Democrat or, every, you know, of course, people <laughs> have their own takes on all of it. But I felt that that was a component of our blues story yeah. that we haven't really talked it's, very much it's, about. It's, it's <clears throat> a mega component of the modern blues story, the mm-hmm. evolution of blues into what we are now in this day and age. And it goes, but it's even beyond blues. I mean, it's interconnected. And this is what really slapped me in the face with your play. I don't know why, I, and I, I, I'm still getting, like talking myself through what I saw and the experience I had of the play. And I'd like to see it again to absorb more of it. But the, the thing that really hit me was I went into the play I'm a blues fan, obviously. I've, I've performed blues music. Of course I knew it was going to be about blues. But why didn't I think... Why, I was thinking so small-framed. And I, when we get in there and you're talking about these... It's truly a social commentary right. on... Stereotypes. On stereotypes. And, and it's relevant to the past uh, uh, to educate people about how we got to where we are. And it's really relevant to now. Even some of the comments... Um, some of the dialogue made me think of the election that had just finished right. and the kneecap and the, uh, yeah, all yeah. this spin stuff that was going on there. And I was like, this is, is uh, insanely relevant to now as well. And it's, and it's based on something that is, you know, many people consider a dead yeah, art form, right? Exactly. So it's, it's amazing that you are using this as a vehicle to not only tell your story, not only educate about the blues, but also you have to live in a cave to not find a parallel to modern society yeah. within this play. And that really blew my mind. I was so angry at myself for, for going in there with such a closed mind and being like, why, why, why didn't I see that coming? But no, I think, but that's great because to me, I think, wow, if, if that even happened to you, mm. then, then I know I'm doing something right because you can imagine for the vast majority of the audience coming that doesn't have as deep a blues connection, they're basically expecting to see a jukebox musical variety show. Yeah, 100%. And so when the lights come up and they see a guy pretending to be a black blues guy for the first minute. That's what they're expecting. Yeah, that's what they're expecting. And there's a little portion of the audience that's hip that's going, oh my God, don't tell me this guy's going to pretend he's an old black guy for the what? whole thing. This is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> like when I did it in Toronto, I had a, I, 
for staging reasons, I had a much more elaborate interactive, like I walked through the audience as this whole blues guy as people were coming in. And Derek Andrews said to me, who's the president of Toronto Blues Society, he said, you got me. Because he said, we put all this energy into promoting your show and getting people to come. And you've included all these artists from the, all these Toronto blues artists are in it. And then I come in and you're walking around pretending to be this old black cliche blues man. He said, what have we done? Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, I only could tell this story if it had those elements in it. And it's been a really long process. I mean, that's the other thing, too, that I think has been so challenging for, for us and important for people to know. is like we're, last night, I think, was, you know, performance 72, and we've been touring it for a year. Well, it opened a year ago, and we've been touring it on and off. You know, here we are, 70-something performance for a live audience, and we're still changing stuff. We're still clarifying it. We're still... Yeah. Because the conversations inside it are evolving. Yeah. And when you stitch together a play in this kind of way through that, what we call that, that thing I was telling you about the farm show, where it's kind of a collective creation or at least it's been created through little workshops of improvised mm-hmm. sections. When you start to sort of have to assemble that into a playlist or yeah. an album, yeah. when you have to start lining those things up to make them fit, um, it's a really long process. And frankly... What I, a lot of the stuff that I created in this was from my gut, mm-hmm. and I didn't intellectually know exactly why it was there. But I think that's what's given it, you know, it's hardly the perfectly structured play by any means. But I think that's given it a character uh, that makes it, um, that allows it to be relevant in that way. And it, uh, the funny thing about this is I think on all kinds of levels, the show's about changing people's expectations. Right. You expect it to be one thing and it turns into another yeah. thing. You don't expect a guy who's beige to sing the blues. That's ultimately kind of what's or, at the heart or, of it. Or, or hip-hop or yeah. uh, a traditional Hindi, is yeah. that right? Cindy, Cindy song. Cindy. Yeah. So, uh, so that, one of the things I wanted to, uh, a couple of things I wanted to ask you. One was how much, and I think you just answered that, how much does the dialogue change from night to night? Because when I was setting up uh, the night I was guesting, you had just mentioned to the guys, hey, tonight I'm, I'm dropping this part of the dialogue. So I, right. that made me wonder how much is, not improv, but how much are you pushing and pulling night to night? And is it is it night to night or is it maybe... It's more, I would say it's been, we're hoping to get pretty close now where we're not, we don't have too much left to right. alter. But we always say that and then we change a bunch of stuff. Of course. So the big changes usually come before we open for a new run because right. then the director's gone after that right. so I have to be pretty careful what I do so after it's kind of like uh, you know a tour with a band by the end of the tour you're pretty tight so yeah. the next tour you go in you're yeah. taking the things that you tweaked out on the exactly. last tour exactly we'll take out this song out of the first yeah. set with this song. and for, for us very little is not much has changed musically like before we came here to Saskatoon we cut one full song and put in a tiny new musical section mm-hmm. um most of the changes have been around the dialogue. Yeah. Just again, trying to get those conversations tighter and more relevant. That dialogue, there's some very direct dialogue about race. Um, did you uh, write this yourself and assist it, or do you have input from friends? Uh, I mean, I know you're beige. Yeah. But you guys have big balls to write stuff like that, rate from your own heart. I mean, it's not stuff that people don't think about regardless no. of your color, but it's certainly stuff that, um, you know, a, a young white male might be resistant to saying in public. Sure. Well, I think, um, 
uh, Divine calls me on it in the play, and the director mm-hmm. would call me on my beige privilege. Yeah, because <laughs> you're great. because you're someone who is mixed race, you sometimes feel that you can speak on some topics. Um, but in, again, in the way that all the expectations keep changing, as soon as my character, the narrator, me thinks he's got that covered, that kind of gets subverted. So, listen, one advantage of having someone like Divine in the show is that Divine was able, in her own perspective, to weigh in and give her opinion on lines and certain things. And be like, no, that that wouldn't be cool yeah, to say, or that's too far, or we can take this farther. But she's been very game. Like, in some ways, the production in Toronto, uh, the original production, was much uh, more abrasive and edgy when it came to the discussions around race. And I felt that what happened was... Um, it could it needed to be handled a little more skillfully and some people were offended in the earlier stuff because they felt you know i was um you know in trying to address stereotypes i was just supporting them and also because i had this kind of reluctance to put myself in the story mm-hmm. uh, people thought it kind of was a bit of beige privilege like you're not really talking about yourself or you're putting yourself in this great light but you're ready to call out everybody else but not yourself that was kind of a construct in it. That was yeah. sort of the point, but I felt people didn't really get it and it alienated the audience. Right. So in this, in this version, I've had to be, and the progression of the year, first of all, you're also performing the shows to not as diverse audiences. Absolutely. And, in a, in, in, and even though diverse populations exist in a lot of these towns, the challenge always is, can they get those people into the into theater? The theater. Right. Which is really the heartbreaking thing about a show like this, is this show... Um, as great as it is to do for an older white audience, which is the vast majority of audiences that go to the theater everywhere in the Western world, like white people over 50 who have money. Mm-hmm. That's it, and that's fine. Um, these shows are also an opportunity to try to reach out to populations like, you know, hey, 10% of Saskatoon is, has a First Nations population. Yeah. So it's like, and there's themes in this show. It was very interesting doing the show in Saskatoon and Winnipeg because the show talks a lot about black and white, but it's also a lot about the other, right? Fear of the other, right? And it's very interesting doing these shows in these towns because they have almost more like an American city dynamic than a lot of than say Toronto does. Yeah, Toronto's other is like white and everybody else in this yeah. huge strange mix. I agree, man. Winnipeg is a, is a it's an intense town. Yeah, and Winnipeg is very much divided between a white... And, and that was the beautiful thing about doing the show in Winnipeg. I remember one night, I finished the section about Chicago, and I say, you know, Chicago's still a city divided by black and white, north and south, white Sox and Cubs. And there was a woman in the front row who leaned over to him and said, it's just like Winnipeg. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And so, you know, I, I, I hope that as the show moves forward... Um, you know, we'll have a chance to take it to a bunch of different audiences. I'd, I'd be very interested to take it to America and see. What yeah. Because, you know, the funny thing is like, you know, some of the conversations in this play are hardly new for Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's... <laughs> you know, but I, I'd be interested to see if an audience, how an audience would respond to very much an outsider's view on their music. Yeah. And in some ways their culture and their dynamic. Yeah. And how but, it's been kind of appropriated and spread yeah. out through the world. And And the beautiful thing about blues is that you can't deny that it has had that it is a universal music mm-hmm. in some ways. You can't deny that it has touched people all over the world. And with every rolling decade, more and more people from different places get in touch with the power of this music. Yeah. Um, but the thing I found really interesting 
was that also when I was on social media, I was following different artists and different, I was following some different African-American blues artists who were very forthright about ownership of the music sure. and all that. So I just wanted to take in more of those opinions and I tried not to do that immediate resist. Like my first thing is, if someone says blues is black music, the first thing I go is, no, it's not. No, it's not. How can you say that? How can? And I tried to really engage in the play, yeah. at least for a portion of it, in that conversation and go, okay, okay, hold on. Okay, by saying blues is black music, what does that mean? What can that mean in the, in the fullness of that statement? Instead of me going, hey, you're not saying I don't right. have a right to. And listen, you'll have white blues. You, you and I know this well. You'll have white artists say, or say non-black blues artists say, oh man, I can't get on that festival because I'm not black. And the guy they have on it is black, but he's no good. Mm -hmm. And you will have African-American uh, blues artists say, man, we can barely get on a blues festival anymore. Look at them. They're full of everybody but black blues yeah. men, right? And people in both camps are as convinced yeah. that they're the one with the problem. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> but, the, yeah. it, but the reality is, it's like it, the, that door swings both ways. Yeah. And if anything with this play... I've tried not really to claim any answers. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to provoke people to think about yeah, it. Yeah, to have the conversation. And the best thing for me to hear is that someone's seen the play and like a day or two later, they're still thinking about it. Oh, yeah. Because absolutely. that's the whole point of art. And to me, that's really the point of theater. Like, if you see a great gig, you'll never forget it and you'll remember moments of it. But in the theater, you can provoke a kind of... It's not just a feeling. There's ideas and thinking and concepts that people need to... Yeah. leave the theater and wrestle with and that's why the show isn't really built for a club right. it really is built for theater because oh, you can't have people yeah. drinking beer and talking no, you want it. that show to be the focus they the have reason, to have the, the reason you're at the destination not oh and there's something else yeah. going on are you uh, have you been able to perform this in schools for children at all or kids we've had a couple student matinees but in fact uh, there haven't been that many and, and actually in Fredericton it was too bad we had a whole uh, sold, almost sold out student matinee booked and it was cancelled at the last minute because oh. of um, school assemblies Bummer. now that being said I did get a call the day before saying uh, why are you saying this is 16 plus and I said well we do say motherfucker in it and there are some mature some innuendo and there are conversations around race but you know um, there's a few racially insensitive words that are spoken but I think those outweigh the importance of young people seeing it. And now, I'm not saying that's why it was canceled, no, but yeah. I, that was the well, inquiry about it. I, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a play that kids should be seeing for a number of reasons. One, because it is the social commentary of our now. Yeah. And who is, uh, who is getting that more than kids in school of that age? I yeah. mean, they're, they're living it now. And, and if they get these questions uh, brought to them to think about now... By the time they're old men like us, yeah. <laughs> you know, they may have actually figured out a way to to navigate the waters in a in a more appropriate manner, and and to think outside. The thing I find people um, aren't aware of is just your own, whether it's um, how you speak about race, women, uh, men, if you're a woman, whatever, is you get stuck in this um, environmental kind of bubble. And some of the things you say may be uh, sexist or perceived racist or whatever, but that's not your intent, and that of course doesn't excuse it. But you're you're ignorant of it, and, yeah. You know, and and to see things that raise questions and make you look at something from a different perspective, 
can actually make you aware and say, oh, when I say that, other people actually take this to mean something other than what I'm intending. And it, it kind of can shift your whole life perspective. I had a drama thing. teacher in high school who was one of my great heroes and a man I love and was one of the greatest teachers I ever had. And we were on a trip to Stratford and my friend was standing beside me and I looked at him and you know, it was kind of informal. We were on a school trip and we were all drama students. We were having, and I looked at my friend and I said, don't be a fag. And my, my drama teacher at the time, who I guess I knew was homosexual but hadn't really thought about it, looked at me and went, hey, yeah. this was about 19, 1990, yeah. 1991. And in that moment, it was like a lightning bolt where I just went, oh, oh my God, what did I just do? Like, yeah. how did I... Like it's, and it's that kind of thing that I think, the, the, the ch and we try to address this a bit in the play, the challenge of all this stuff is that no one wants to feel like they're stupid, no one wants to feel like they're wrong. And I tell you, you know, I can guarantee you someone could write a, someone could write a, a PhD on how uh, I'm a racist or how I'm not um, culturally sensitive enough mm -hmm. or how... Uh, yeah, like I said, I was called out on elements of this play in Toronto, absolutely, by people who said I was promoting stereotypes of people of color and other people saying, um, you know, there was another section of the play that I've cut that kind of, uh, it wasn't my intention, but it kind of uh, implied uh, it sexualized uh, African-American women in a way that was inappropriate. And, and, and like, um, there's almost no way to escape offending people right now. No, it's impossible. And, and that's the flip side of it that's hard. And the best way to approach these conversations is that if someone is going to lecture somebody else on how they should be, they have to try to do it in a spirit that's uh, what they're trying to be open to mm -hmm. and realize that almost any time you bring that up, the first response is going to be defensive. And it happens Always. to me all the time. And, and I think the... Hopefully, the good news that comes out of it is that people will just become more aware. I just read a, a really interesting open letter online from a, a woman in the Toronto theater who's commenting on another guy's open letter where he was a white guy who commented on uh, why theaters don't do more racial diversity in the theater. And she wrote this incredibly articulate response. The thing, I know both these people. Both of them are really intelligent. Mm -hmm. Both of them are actually trying to change things mm -hmm. and have a conversation. Um, but it actually requires that guy kind of being called out. And it requires her fully articulating her point and it not getting personal. And it's like, right. these are like, we're into such minefields right now. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't, I think it's sort of painful and... Um, there's a lot of people who are using it, particularly in social media, to put somebody down, to lord over somebody, to make themselves feel better. Sure. But, you know, when you know the people involved and they're not anonymous, um, hopefully, or when people are coming into a space like a theater, a trusted space like a theater, where people are paying money to watch it, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully people are leaving less with that feeling of being, you know, lectured or aggressed, and people are leaving more with this idea of, Oh, maybe maybe I need to look at things a little bit different. Yeah, I think in, in depending on the open mindedness of an individual, I think when two people are of opposing views, it is almost never that one is going to convince the other to change their mind. <laughs> you have to have a personal moment of experience that transcends where you were before. 
Yes. So, so whether that's in the theater in your play and it makes some a line resonates and it makes them think and they go home and they spend a week thinking about it or whether they're on the streets of whatever city yeah. and something and they see something happen either to someone else or to themselves unless you have an actual moment that, that happens to you personally that causes you to transcend your old beliefs all you can really do is discuss it and try and I mean I just don't believe you. it's very rare you convince somebody yeah, Raul, you're wrong. You're wrong. Oh, and what yeah. I'm saying oh, is right. Yeah. You should yeah. believe what I say. That just doesn't happen. No, let, look back at our Canadian election here and all yeah. that stuff online. Right, everybody. Ugh. We're all trying so hard to convince each other that the other person's wrong, and barely anyone's opinion would change. So crazy. <laughs> but on the on the other hand, the, the I, uh, it was amazing to see it. I mean, it was parts of it were kind of disgusting to watch, right. but it was amazing to see people finally talking about it in, yeah. in such mass. Yeah, uh, kind yeah. Of. People are kind of in denial, and I think that's one of the advantages of the social media conversation. But I think the important thing that I have, to, and I had a good reminder of it. You know, there's a little section of the show where I talk about being in this white taxi on the south side of Chicago, going on my own little kind of tour. And at one point, you know, I look up and like there's basically like a whole corner of dudes looking at me like going, "What, what? the fuck <laughs> are you doing here?" Like it's it's nine a.m. on a Sunday and you're taking pictures of like this boarded up building, yeah. like, and you're with a white driver and a white taxi cab, like what? What the f- like yeah. you're just another person come down here to fuck with us, like yeah. leave us alone, yeah. right? And and you know, <laughs> I went on a long walk earlier this week uh, through very unfamiliar parts of Saskatoon to get a flu shot and I found myself walking through a chunk of town here where that my heart rate went up a little bit and I was looking around going like aware. I was going like oh yeah they're looking at me like who the fuck are you man yeah. what are you doing here yeah. now what do you want take a wrong turn yeah I took a wrong turn and I, well I followed my Apple map that doesn't that doesn't tell you oh don't go down that avenue because it's scary uh, I it, it gave me the shortest route, yeah. and I started walking down it, and I went, "Shit, man!" Here's a reminder. So just in case I was even feeling like I was above it all, and I'm a playwright, and I figured it out, and I put it on stage, and I'm right, and you're wrong. I was like, "No, man!" It's I was scared a little bit. I was wondering what the hell was going on, and and that was a reminder that like, oh yeah, man, like this is an ongoing thing where there's not a lot of easy answers because. Um, you know, it's just not that easy. So yeah. I'm hoping with the play that the people get that as well. And it's more about, and really ultimately when you get to the end of the play, the, the overarching uh, thing at the end is that the blues is there to heal you. The blues is there to make you feel good. The blues is there to get you through those hard times. Yeah. And the blues is a spontaneous, and when we have a guest like, like you did, Ross, come out of the audience who you know, we, we haven't really rehearsed with, we haven't really done a lot of playing with before. When people get up and see us all jam and play together and make good music together instantly, yeah. that then people who don't know the magic of the blues, that that's what they're left with. Yeah. And this other stuff's been in there to, to that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the you know, the, the, those are sort of the molasses that you gotta, you know, yeah. or the, that's the cod liver oil you gotta yeah. kind of slap and put yeah. in there. But that basically people are leaving going like, Oh, I feel great because yeah. that's why we play blues, right? Yeah, that's why we play it. That's why we go watch it. Is that we leave it and we go, ah, oh, man, that felt good to do. That felt good to watch. Yeah, and 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 when Divine finishes singing her song at the end, oh. it's, it's been through a real emotional part of the show, and people are watery eyed and people are blown away by her skill and talent. 
but she felt better doing it and the audience feels better having been through it Absolutely. that's what to me the blues is that's what it's all about and one of the parts of the show that was one of my favorite parts is when you uh, portray um, the character of uh, Bad News Brown yeah, and which is a whole both, other both musically of it. and the character intrigued me a lot. Yeah. I didn't know anything about the guy, and have, have done a little uh, internet googling since. But uh, and but the execution of the of the the song was was so good I, and took me off guard. I never expected right. you to get up and do some hip hop stuff <laughs> and trust sell me, it and sell trust it. me, I I didn't really expect it either, but. But it works. And, uh, I'm not about to release my hip-hop album, so <laughs> But it, it worked, um, and I guess it had to work, or you couldn't have that yeah. section in the, in the show, but it worked, and it made me want to know more about this character. So is this somebody you knew personally, or is this a story that you were familiar with? Uh, I had heard about uh, Paul Frappier, a.k.a. Bad News Brown. I first heard of him, uh, I'd heard strains of there was this hip-hop harmonica player from Montreal. Yeah, right away. It's like, and what? He played Lee Oscar harmonicas. Okay. And so, um, when David Rotondo and Lee Oscar were doing some of their touring shows to Quebec, right. uh, Bad News would sit in. Gotcha. So there was kind of, and then I'd also heard, I'd never talked about it, but I talked about Full Circle, I'd also heard that Bad News and Bareth Rajakumar had had some kind of connections in Montreal around harmonica right. and playing. Interesting. So I'd heard there was this hip-hop harmonica guy. And when I thought about it, I thought, oh, yeah, sure. And then I thought about it, and thought, wait a second, nobody's done that. Like, nobody's done that. And then I started to listen to him a little bit. And then there was news that he'd been murdered. Yeah. And it was just another one of these, oh, man, like, here's an... And, you know, this came at a time in Toronto where, you know, the Toronto Sun or the newspaper will print who are the 55 people murdered in Toronto this year and, you know... 50 of them are people of color. Mm -hmm. They're Sri Lankan, they're black. Mm -hmm. they're... And so for me, it was just this, I mean, this is before the Black Lives Matter specifically, but it was just another thing where it's like, you know, here's a guy who, I mean, he opened for Kanye. Yeah. He was opening for He had stuff going on. He had some real shit going on. Yeah. And, you know, he still basically couldn't escape the prism that being a young black hip-hop performer, a young black musician, young black man in Canada yeah. provides for some people. Yeah. And again, this didn't come when he was fronting his own gang or anything yeah. like that shit. He was like a lot of that from all accounts I've read and, and, and heard was pretty distant in his past as a yeah. teenager. How many, how many of us as teenagers did stupid things, hung with the wrong guys? Yep. You know, those are almost stories among a lot of the people we know as like rites of passage. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's that, and again, still, it is an unsolved murder in Montreal. Here we are in 2015. His murder is still unsolved. It's creepy because it seemed like, and 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 tragic, I guess is the real, real word. Because the stuff that I was compelled to to read, um, just from the the few minutes in your play that uh, talk about him, I was looking him up online. I was like, wow, this is a guy who had who had gotten through, as you say, the teenage kind of issues had uh, grown to be respected amongst his community as a, as a great musical uh, fella, had gone on to start his own label, make an album, release his own label, really was like kicking ass and taking names. Yeah, totally. And I, you know, I'm, I'm only in my own mind, I'm thinking like, I wonder if he ever felt like, like just as you feel like, like looking over your shoulder and like you see it way in the background, the old, your old life, the stereotypes, the yeah. whatever, and it's like, 
I'm doing some good stuff. He was working a lot with kids. Like yeah. it was a, a bona fide good role role model. Yeah. And then bang, like bang, and then bang, out of exactly. out of the darkness comes the hand of the past and like yeah. holds you down and does you in. You know, and there's all kinds of theories. He'd been he he'd done a part in a film playing a, a gangland kind of kingpin in somebody's local movie, and there's thoughts that maybe someone else who was up for the party was really from that world was pissed that he got him he didn't do it there could have been other stuff I, I'm, I don't know yeah. but what I do know is that this harmonica innovator who was an, who was also visible minority who was also from Canada mm-hmm. who actually did uh, I mean if you played harmonica with Lee Oscar and you played his harmonicas you're you're actually in, and you played with our friend David Rotundo yeah. You're in the blues family. Yeah. He's on the periphery. 100%. He was in the blues family and frankly was destined potentially for a whole other level beyond any of us. Yeah. You know, if, if his hip hop harmonica thing went crazy, uh, he'd be uh, yeah. he'd be rolling with Drake and beyond. Mar- marrying uh, genres beyond you know, <laughs> what's going on. Yeah, so 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 the fact that his life was taken, the fact that he he is still anonymous to so many people, and the fact that he he wasn't uh, African-American artist that this happened mm-hmm. to. That he was one of us. Mm-hmm. And he's from he's from the home, he's from Montreal. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, there was such potential there and that was totally snuffed out. And, and in a way his story and his life is, um, and the fact that it's an unsolved murder and all that stuff, it leans back to that kind of invisibility. And mm-hmm. that's, I talk about that a bit in the play is yeah. that that a visible minority in the society is feeling invisible, and that, that and and if we look back on blues history and our blues culture and our blues legacy, there's a lot of efforts now to put it in museums to have it recognized, but for so many years the history of that again was oral and almost invisible. Yeah. So yeah. he like I saw all kinds of thematic things now and again some people have argued. Uh, even up to the review we got here in Saskatoon, that um, it's unfair to bring him in at the end. That it is, uh, exp- even some people have said, exploitive to bring oh, in yeah. the death of the young black man at the end and use it for our own purposes. <laughs> and all I can say is, listen, any critic is allowed that point of view. Sure. And we have tried more artfully to uh, string it through and justify it so it doesn't seem like something's tacked on. Or as one person said, an excuse to sing Precious Lord, which I guarantee you the impulse to come sing Precious Lord <laughs> came from a totally different workshop and section. Yeah. But it's really interesting because you start talking about like, okay, is there, does that moment make people uncomfortable, which it's supposed to? Absolutely. Does it make us all so uncomfortable that that critic, deep down in their own biases, in their own privilege, in their own perspective, like me, does that make them go like, you can't do that. That's not my fault. Don't bring that up. You're, so they end up defending him by saying he's the exploited one. I'm exploiting and, and in him. turn defending themselves. Their of own, course. Their own personal beliefs. And, and the fact that that has been so consistent, and it, unfortunately the play, as far as I've seen, has actually never been reviewed by a person of color. person of color may have that opinion too. They may have all kinds of other opinions. Be curious. But, but it's pretty interesting that bringing up the death of a young black man at the end of this play that's been all about identity, race, cultural value, the cultural value of the blues, what does it mean to be stereotyped as big, black, and bad, that bringing up the reality that someone from our country, our community, our society, in a sense, 
was murdered, it's unsolved, and he is kind of a big black bad stereotype casualty. Mm -hmm. The fact that that is seen as an add-on or the wrong thing for us to do, I think says an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, I, it was one of my favorite parts of the show, musically and uh, and story-wise. It, it to me, it just it, it worked. Like it, when it came back around to it, I could see it coming. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is about to get real, and they're about to go for the jugular on the yeah. heartstring here. Yeah. So I was trying to mentally prepare for what I assumed was. was and you know, the we real used to have it sneak up on you more, and we realized now that in fact we have to prepare people for it. Yeah. I kept wanting to keep it as a surprise, because that would be a more vicious gush punch, and in some ways it it was, but it's I, effective. It's, uh, yeah. As but it's I think presented now. I think dramatically it actually needed the preparation, but. You yeah. know, listen. I'm 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 happy to hear opinions on it, and, and as create long as, stuff so people talk. As about long it. as people are talking yeah. about it, you know, yeah. you're doing something right if people are getting worked up in some manner or another. And listen, if people come to see a show about the blues and listen to the good music, and they've left with any of these things in their mind, yeah. like I've totally done the job of the play. Yeah. Because, uh, you know. Uh, if you want to hear great music, come see Raul in the Big Time. I don't talk about any of that stuff. Yeah, it's a good, just a good I, I time. I play the songs, man. Yeah. And I love, I play my own music. I play some of the originators' music. Um, you know, like that's, I love doing that. Yeah. And frankly, it's way less of a, it, it's, it's a lot, I don't want to say it's easier, but it is. Yeah. I get to just play the music and it's free and yeah. we do our thing and you play the songs you've been playing for 10 years. Yeah. And you have a great time, and people love it. And you're just you're there to entertain and move people. You're not also there to engage in this conversation. There's a lot of a lot of work and a lot of responsibility that goes into putting on a, a production like Life, Death, yeah. and the Blues. I was thinking afterwards. I was like, I know how hard it is to book a tour across Canada with a band, a three-piece band. Yeah, yeah. It's excruciating to do yourself. <laughs> and I left there thinking. Wow, Raul is insane! Like you, <laughs> you've written a play and now you're touring it. Like that's well, I can, crazy. I have the thing I have to say too. The wonderful thing about the theater is the theater is such a cooperative, collective art form. Yeah. That there's no way this is happening on any level if it's just me. Yeah, of course. You know what I mean? Like I have to have this incredible band that's yeah. that's willing and ready to play in a very strict theater format mm -hmm. where we stretch mm -hmm. out when we have the guests sure. but the rest of the time those guys Regimented. it's like throwing darts they go yeah. boom 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 yeah. right here right here that exact beat that came in a beat late so that has to be yeah. then I have to have a co-star like Divine who's willing to go on this journey of being this sort of <laughs> being basically the representative of blackness yeah. and being <laughs> herself yeah. and then also being you know like a She's very funny in it too. I think she's so being, great. Being a comedian in it, and then also being herself and singing her own material. She's got to be on board. Then this huge creative team. The, the my my old friend and director who's done, and along with Andy who runs the theater, who we've worked on so many passes through the script. Like it's almost our poor stage manager. When we go back into rehearsal, she starts to go into. <laughs> she has PTSD because we keep changing everything. Right. And then, you know, this incredible group of designers who still tag along with it a year later when I say, oh, we're going to cut that part. Okay, I'll make a new thing here. We'll change the lights here. And my tour manager. And so, it's and you know, this is a, it's a big, big team. And, you know, it's it's very expensive. I can only you know, you imagine, can imagine yeah. how expensive it is. Yeah. And how um, that's the challenge of taking something. That's why it's such a treat to come somewhere and do it for three weeks. Yeah. Because the other opportunities to do it, I'm hoping to do a tour of Atlantic Canada in the next year or two, but that'll be, you know, hopefully 
Moncton for a night, St. Yeah. John's for a night. Yeah. Um, maybe Fredericton again for a night. We don't know. We've already done it. Um, Halifax. You know, Halifax, St. John. You know, yeah. trying to hit all those places and yeah. we do it once. You know, when you get to come somewhere and do it for three weeks, it's a luxury. Build an audience yeah. and have all these guest artists come in from town sleep in one bed it. for three nights. Yeah, weeks, you know. but it's a, you know the impact you can leave on a town when you run something for three weeks Certainly. is so different when we're doing our one nighters, which is yeah. nowadays. I mean, you know, in the old days, guys used to play in town yeah. for a week, but at the same time, you have to sell a show for three freaking weeks. Well, and that's again, that's it's not intense. me. That's the then so that's the those are the people I described are the people that bring life, death, and blues to this theater. Yeah. Then the theater has subscribers, a full marketing department, yeah. uh, they all their technical staff. Like it's their job to sell the seats. Mm -hmm. I'll do everything, anything they tell me. To, I'll do any interview, yeah. any event, and anything they want me to do. And the I best performances within your capabilities. So Absolutely. those people leave and tell all their friends. Exactly. And that's why we do have a merchandise table thing at the end, not just to sell CDs, but also. Because usually when people come see plays, you don't talk to the actors after. No, you don't meet them after. Yeah. But, you know, in the blues, we play and then yeah. we talk to people after. Yeah. That's why I'm a blues musician is yeah. because I got to talk yeah. to that. Yeah. So, where, so you're in Saskatoon for three weeks, you're on a little hiatus, and then Calgary, is that right? Yeah, we're doing it at the Alberta Theatre Projects in Calgary for two weeks. And that's in January? Yeah, last two weeks. Right, right. Yeah. And, and in the future, further down the road? I hope to do this kind of one-nighter soft-seater tour of Atlanta, Canada, maybe. Mm -hmm. I'd also love to take it to the north, yeah. uh, Yukon, Northwest Territories, and a bit of Alberta again. Um, but really, um, you know, there's a handful of other destinations in Canada where we could do the show in this manner. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're working on those. But, you know, it's challenging. Some people saw the play early on and yeah. have an opinion on it. And... I think some people are still a little scared of the themes in it. What? That's that's too bad. What's the shelf life of something like this in the theater world? It all depends. Like in a lot of things, all depends on your market. Yeah. You know, I'd say we have a couple more years to get it around Canada. Yeah. And then, um, but you know, I'd, I'm trying to put my focus on a little bit more. Also, now as it's really coming together, we're getting so close to what I think it actually is. Is uh, new musicals often take a long time. Like there I was feeling bad I was doing a rewrite. And a friend of mine, my stage manager, emailed me to say her friend was working on the huge musical Motown, which just right. played in Toronto, which Barry Gordy wrote. Amazing. It's about, like, Barry Gordy is a character in it. It's kind yeah. of the Barry Gordy story inside Motown. And they do, like, 50 Motown hits. And, you know, awesome. incredible cast and all that. But, you know, it opened on Broadway, was nominated for Tony's. It's been on a year-long bus and truck tour of the States and they were taking some time in Toronto to do rewrites so I went okay man like okay. if Barry Gordy's show needs to be rewritten <laughs> my friggin show needs to be rewritten you, you have license so I, but you know I would really love to see if the show could have a, a an international touring component um, you know I got young kids and stuff I'm not looking to be away for eight months on tour or anything like that but I'd love to see how the message of this show reflects it's so Canadian right it's such a, and in some ways it's very Toronto, but it's even more, it's a really Canadian yeah. show. I'd love to see, instead of that being kind of an embarrassment, I'd love to see how that, how, it's how people react to it. Yeah. Because it's a, it is a very unique perspective yeah. on what this thing is. Absolutely. So it is, I, yeah. I love doing it in, across Canada, and it'll be interesting to see if there's any interest in the U.S. as we go. You know, when um, Billy Branshaw from Chicago, he, he was quite intrigued by it. And when Eden Brent, who's based in Mississippi, saw it, she said, oh, I feel so proud. And I said, what? She said, I'm so proud of Mississippi having seen this show because you're someone not from there talking about us and where we're from. 
And I thought, I thought about it and thought, yeah, that, would, that might be very interesting for, for, you know, if we were able to get it to, to either Chicago or Mississippi, for people to see Absolutely. the interest that those of us have. For, I mean, you, yeah. you're, you know, you're, those, that we have such a, those of us from outside those places have such a passion for the thing they created. And uh, I think it would be interesting for people to see art that's about them and where they're from. Yeah, the legacy. Um, Indeed. So, so we'll see. But like I said, it is a very big undertaking. And one advantage of having this new government elected is they are reinstituting a program, or they claim to be reinstituting a program, that was called Promart and Trade Routes out of External Affairs, mm-hmm. or Foreign Affairs, whatever it's called now, um, which basically helped promote touring Canadian theater and dance and music internationally. That project, that, that program in the last 10 years was entirely scrapped. So if that goes, you know, it might help a bunch of us um, just stretch out a little bit further. I mean, it's yeah. not, again, the fallacy with all this stuff is people think, you know, oh, I get my, the, you, you artsies get your trade routes program and then you sit at home all year and go to Hong Kong for two days. Well, no, you and I know that, that shit's to help pay for like three plane tickets to Hong Kong and a whole couple hotel rooms. Yeah. But those are the costs that make bringing this impossible. Yeah. I'll tell you a really quick story. Uh, Please. About 10 years ago... I was trying to get my Hamlet show to Europe, and uh, there was a Shakespeare festival in Gdansk, Poland, that offered me a spot, but they didn't pay. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it also be a blues musician. I was like, well, hey, man, if it doesn't pay, I can't go. They said, well, we'll pay your room and your board, and uh, we can contribute towards a plane ticket. And I said, well, man, you know, like, we can't, I can't come from Canada unless you guys pay me. And they said, well, what about from your government? Can you get any help? I said, no, that program's been scrapped. And they said, oh, that's too bad. Because there's a company coming from Japan that's going to do King Lear, like in the Japanese traditional um, no theater style. And the Japanese government was paying for 20 artists and crew to come to Poland to perform there. Amazing. <laughs> I was like, I can't get, I can't get the money for a plane ticket for a solo Hamlet, like a one guy Hamlet. It'd be me and my director. That's reality. Two people would go from Canada, and it would be, you know, the Canadian interpretation of Hamlet. And that, and that production went on to have a documentary done about yeah. it. It's on. Is it on Broadway? Yeah, Shirt yeah. Broadway? It was dominated so like, for Gemini and. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but you go like you know you you at that point you're a, a cultural ambassador to the country. Yeah, or or should be perceived that way. <clears throat> We've had a lot it's of focus more on on kind of a uh, I guess what my dad being a diplomat he would call it. Uh, there's been a greater focus on hard power in Canada, not soft power. Right. But you know, in previous eras of Canadian diplomacy, there was actually seen like like we're never going to have as many tanks as China. We're never going to have as many tanks as the U.S. But a way of spreading Canadian values and Canadian perspective is also through our culture. The arts. And letting other people around the world see what Ross can do and what Raoul can do. And I tell you, people have such little understanding of what comes from here. It's it's almost always a surprise and usually a really good surprise. So we've had a few companies and orchestras and theater companies and theater artists and musicians who've, who've been able to carry that flag. But there's an opportunity for it to happen on smaller levels, yeah, where it's not just you know la 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 human steps or yeah. the Royal Winnipeg Ballet, where or Robert Lepage, where you know it is more homegrown, homespun, uh, folk, tangible. Yeah. yeah, like the people who play in bars going yeah. to go play in bars in those countries. Yeah. you know you can you can 
teach people, and I, I really believe even more than my Hamlet show, I really believe a show like Life, Death, and the Blues, if people saw that internationally, they'd have a real different perspective on what it is to be a Canadian Agreed, person yeah. today. Yeah, and, and, and at the very least, it would, you know, fire up their curiosity. Yeah. Like, I mean, some of those countries that we're talking about where we would do this, they're, they're having huge problems with the idea of the other. And this is a show created by someone who's a mix of two of the other and the, the mainstream or whatever you want to say. Like, like it's interesting in the show talking about refugees. Yeah. You know, my, my, my ancestors at one point were oh, refugees, right? What's that line? The, the, the latest one is the bad one. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that just that was, hit me uh, like a hammer because of all this. Canada's built as going. a country built on immigration, but it always seems the next wave, no matter who they are. They're the bad ones, the yeah. ones we got to really watch out oh, for. it was just the great Because, line. you know, the Irish were the worst people you could have in this country yeah. 25 years ago. Now yeah. it's like being Irish is like, we got a special day for you, yeah. man. Yeah. We're all Irish. Can you, can you imagine if um, 100 years from now we'll all be walking around with badges saying, I'm Syrian. That'd be great. I'm a Muslim Syrian. Happy Muslim Syrian day. Yeah. But, I mean, people would have, people were, you know. And, and listen, it's been, it's been like that for... Every new wave that showed up, it's been the yeah, case. and then sadly will likely continue to be yeah. like that in the future. But you know that I think that perspective could be really interesting in some other places where they're just catching up to this conversation. Yeah. And like I'm, exactly. I'm an example of being the child of that conversation. Right. I hope when people see the play even here in Canada, and they go like, "Oh Jesus, we're going to let in all these Syrians!" Like, "Oh Christ, what's that going to do?" Yeah, that they'll go, "Oh yeah, well here's a kid whose like ancestors were refugees and." We let his parents in, and geez, now he is performing this great music for me and telling me a story. That didn't work out so bad. Yeah, I, yeah. I enjoyed myself at his, yeah. uh, his play last night. Yeah, geez, I'm glad he's around doing plays or playing blues yeah. or whatever. Well, you know? and again, that's why I feel like the, the whole production is so relevant to the past and more importantly to the current present. Like It's, uh, great. it's a great, great production, and I, I wish you nothing but the best of luck for it. There it is, folks, uh, my conversation with um, Raul Benesia, really sweet guy. We had a, a really good hang there, and I hope you got the gist of that. I hope that transferred through to your ear holes and that you enjoyed your yourself um, and our conversation. Um, what's going on with me? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I've got a new album in the can, or almost in the can, we're working on. Still raising a bit of money, you can visit over at um, my website, rossnielsen.com, or you can visit at uh, Ross Nielsen Music on Facebook and get the link, pre-order an album, uh, or there's a few other cool things on there, guitar lessons and, and photo books from touring and that kind of stuff. Um, if you like, you can do that. And for shows, I'm going to be in uh, Oak Island down by Chester with the uh, winter blues meltdown, Christine Campbell, Carson Downey and Shrimp Daddy Reed. We're going to be uh, blues reviewing it up. If you're in the neighborhood there, come check that out. Otherwise, I will see you uh, when I see you, and I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I do. I really love the conversations that I've been having, and uh, so stay tuned. The next one uh, will be a, uh, a musician as well. So we'll talk to you soon. Stay good to each other, and uh, stay warm. It's, it's cold. It's wintertime. Bye-bye.